Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. So we have, uh, as Julia said, the amazing privilege of of Tom joining us. He doesn't want me to say anything more, but um, I have to. I just also want to say a huge welcome to Battersea and Westside who are joining us right now uh, online, streaming this part of the meeting in to listen in to Tom as well. So welcome, guys. Great to have you joining us. Tom Price uh, was actually a lecturer of mine uh, and tutor uh, from Oxford, which is currently where you still live. Yes, from, from OCA, Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which is basically a, a space that is, provides space for thinking through and speaking to the biggest questions that people have about meaning, about purpose, about faith. And uh, Tom was instrumental in forming me as someone who looks uh, and enjoys thinking through some of these questions. So, Tom, it's, it's amazing to have you with us today. Um, thank you for all that you have done uh, already. And we look forward to hearing you speaking to the topic of uh, how could there be only one way in a world of many faiths. So, really provocative question. Hopefully, it's already provoking some thoughts and questions. Speaking of which, we are going to be taking questions at the end in a live Q&A. So, we're going to put Tom to the test after he's spoken. He's not just going to be able to say these nice things. He's going to have to respond to some critical questions from us. So, there's a slide with uh, a text, a number on the screen. And you're going to text your questions straight to me, and I'm going to ask them as you text them uh, to Tom at the end of his talk. So, huge, um, hopefully, invitation there for you to engage, to think it through, and to get your question answered, answered at the end, where we have about 10 to 15 minutes uh, to, to respond to Tom's talk. So, Tom, huge privilege to have you with us. You're so welcome. Uh, could we give Tom a round of applause as he comes up to speak? Thank you, Mike. It's good to be with you all. Am I on? Does it work? Hello. Great. Knowing about someone or something is the topic today. Has God revealed himself? Is God real? Does anyone know God? Do you know God in ways that you are aware of or ways that you're not aware of? Do I know God? Do we know God together? How can we say that there is one way to God in a world where there are so many different faiths? Does Jesus have to be the only one that you follow? Can't God just welcome sincere people who seek him from any point of view or religious system? These are really important, fair, and good questions. We might find ourselves quite impressed by Christ's life, his the way he reached out to people from all different levels and sectors of society around him. We might find ourselves drawn into Christian community, but then somewhat affronted by the more intolerant-sounding claim that it's only through Christ that we can have relationship with God. I get it. I completely get it. It makes sense. It used to put my nose out too, and I'd like to try to suggest there's a way through it. We live in a very information-rich age. 
ideas all around us. And it's actually quite hard to sort out all the different data and all the different information coming at us. Every day, thousands, if not hundreds, of messages from brands, from the news, from political spheres, from our workplace, through the kids' education, through all kinds of connections, through our phones, and through all types of media. We're learning at quite a quick rate about other cultures and beliefs where in the past, maybe 100 years ago, we wouldn't have the same understandings. And we exist now in a global connectedness, at least in the West, where we find that the ideas that are talked about in one place very quickly are affecting another. A school head told me that when a school shooting happens in America, in London, this school head has to get on the phone that night before the next day at school and hire pastoral support staff and counselors to support the students at the school in London because they're so affected by the connection through their phones and through media. Now, when people become religious, what tends to happen is that they think they're right and others are wrong. And this leads to a kind of us and them thinking. We're all familiar with that phrase. The outsiders might become depersonalized. This increases the amount of suspicion, division, and perhaps violence in our world. If something's exclusive, it sort of means it's the only place you can get it. Are these not exactly the kinds of ideas that society ought to be calling out and rejecting? Is this not what all of us should stand against? Well, when we look at the news over the last 15 years, at least, if not going back a lot further, we find actually it's quite clear that a high proportion of the conflict in, around the world is entangled with religious beliefs and is entangled with the deep beliefs that people see and have. It's quite clear that what's going on in Russia and in Ukraine at the moment is linked to some kind of spiritual vision about the reunification of a spiritual outlook for Putin. It's quite clear that that's connected into so many different conflicts in different ways in the world. The divisiveness of religion is a serious problem in the modern world. We can't just ignore that. And most of the different parts of the world, there are strategies and governments and academics, and all of us are trying to respond to this problem in loads of different ways. I want to try to suggest that there are three main ways that we tend to respond to this problem of religious divisiveness. And I want to suggest that two of them work, don't work, and one of them does work. One of them is a way through, and that that is the way through we should take. So the first way that we tend to respond to the problem of religious divisiveness is that we try to ban it. We try to get rid of it. Elton John, I don't know if he'd really hold this view, um, that it should be banned if he was PM. Maybe it's sort of uh, uh, perhaps a moment of outspoken clarity. But he, he, he feels that he, he might like to ban it. But you definitely do see this approach in China, for example, um, where Christians are arrested, religious believers are killed and arrested in North Korea. So the first way that we try to deal with the problem of religious divisiveness in the world is to try to stamp it out with force or by banning it, government pressure. But there's a problem um, with this. This is exactly what's happened in China and what we've seen as well is that current estimates actually say that the percentage of the entire Chinese population estimated to be Christians is moving from about 1% to about 45 to 50% over this current 100-year period. So 
If, if that doesn't work, Christianity seems particularly to flourish when it's stamped out in that kind of way, when, when that attempt is made. Then maybe there's a second way to approach this. It kind of leads to a bit of, uh, of a complicated relationship between citizens and the state as well that we may not also be that keen on. Um, the second way that we try to approach it is by sort of attacking its claims or undermining its power. And this is where you might find examples of, say, things like the new atheism coming in, where people will hire, you know, put adverts on the side of buses or write books saying it's time for people of intellect to um, reject faith um, and to walk away from this old system. Religion is what separates people. Religion is what pushes people away from each other. So we, we might respond to this problem of the divisiveness of religion by, instead of addressing it through the government or through laws, by banning it, instead we just try to gently undermine it or directly undermine it. I think this happens quite a lot of the time in the media that we're watching. Gently messaging is slipped in there or kind of comes through to us that it's just wrong to claim that your way is the truth or that your way is the right way. People have made explicit documentaries, sure, like you know, Dawkins did Religion, the Root of All Evil, or Christopher Hitchens did um, his book on how religion poisons everything. But you get these undercutting ideas that come through TV series. Most TV series have some sort of mention. I found stuff in House. I found stuff in 24, in um, Sherlock. Here's a, here's a clip from Sherlock where this is just gently touched on, this idea that religion is ridiculous and this kind of claim of a truth is ridiculous. Did you catch it? God is a ludicrous fiction dreamt up by inadequates who abnegate all responsibility to an invisible magic friend. Watson replies, yeah, but there'll be cake. Will you do it? <laughs> He's open to that. Now, the reasoning here might look something like this. Exclusive claims are bad and mistaken, untrue. Um, why are they mistaken? Well, even if you claim that you have the truth, because of the limitations of your own pool of knowledge, what you believe is partly a product of the culture that you're in. So not only are the ideas directly attacked by sort of examples of undercutting ideas coming through media or explicitly through things like the new atheism, but you also find that there's this gentle suggestion through the retelling of things like the Hindu myth or Hindu story of the blind man and the elephant. It's an old parable. One blind man is touching the side of the elephant, and he says it's a wall. Another blind man is touching the ear, and he says it's the leaf of a tree. Another is holding a leg and says it's a tree trunk. Another takes the hold of the elephant's trunk and says it's a snake. Someone else is touching the tusk and says it's a spear. Another blind man took the elephant's tail in his hand and is beginning to describe it as a rope. And there's this poem called The Men of Indostan, which describes this sort of situation. And the idea here is that all of the blind men were touching the same reality, but they're understanding it differently. And maybe we ought to understand the way we come to religious beliefs in the same sort of way. And people like John Hick and others have explored this idea, connected it to the work of Immanuel Kant and others. But the basic idea here is you can't say that you have more of the truth than anyone else. Knowledge claims about spiritual facts are just a bit naive now. Isn't that right? People have used this old parable to share their view and share their opinion that no one religion is the only route to God. And we should never think that we possess definite, concrete, exclusive religious truths. Have any of you heard of this story, this parable before? Yeah. I actually really have a lot of sympathy with this. I think it's really well intended. I, I think it really is. If this is where you're coming from this morning, then I, I think I'd really love to have an honest conversation with you about what's right about this. 
But I also have some questions um, about whether it's really going to work in dealing with the problem of religious divisiveness. The first thing I want to say is this, is that I agree that the search for truth means being open-minded. But I don't think that being open-minded means not being able to discover a truth or commit to a truth when we find it. We shouldn't be so open-minded that we can't commit to anything. As Chesterton says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Well, as a foodie, that particularly connects with me. <laughs> the second thing I'd like to say to you, just to talk to you about and get you to think about, is just how important humility is. I have met heard from and being pers and been personally offended and really deeply hurt by arrogant, dogmatic religious people who are so convinced they're right and everyone else is wrong that they have, I've seen them do real damage to people and to me. And where this has happened, I think our only response is compassion and an apology. So if that has been your experience of religious people in your life, I, I am sorry, I, I genuinely am sorry. It's hurt me. That is not what Jesus wants. Jesus tells his followers that we're to live with a love, a gentleness, and a respect for people. Humility is so, so important. But we also need to hold humility a bit, as a bit of a different thing and distinguish it from truth and from reality. Say you go to the doctor with an infection, and he says this infection can be treated with this antibiotic, but it won't actually be treated by that vitamin tablet. I don't think we would say, oh, that's not very humble. That's, that's a bit arrogant. We wouldn't refuse the antibiotic on those grounds. If it's true, if a fact is true, then it's true. But if somebody telling you that fact, that idea, that truth is arrogant, then it can be really unappealing, but it may still be true. I think we have to hold those two things slightly separate and distinguish them. The third thing I'd like to mention to you is that um, the nature of truth, I think, is exclusive. This is a picture of um, diamonds. Um, I, my, my son, Barney, who's nine, has a great master plan. He heard that it rained diamonds on some planets in the solar system, and he's at work at the moment, probably right at this moment, with his Lego, constructing a robot um, army and vehicle that will be able to go and get the diamonds back for him to let him buy mansions for everybody, <laughs> which probably will include a certain amount of Fortnite going on as well. Um, the nature of water is wet. The nature of diamond is it's hard. The nature of truth is that things that contradict it are exclusive, they, they can't both be true. Diamond is incredibly hard and tough. It therefore is not also wet and soft. When something is true, it will by nature exclude its opposite. This is just part of what it means for something to be true. Reality doesn't lack humility or become less truthful for being as it is. If someone says Jesus is the only way to God, then we might not want to listen to the arrogant way that they put it, if they put it to us in an arrogant, dogmatic kind of way. But we shouldn't think that can't be true because it excludes other ways to get to God. The question is, is it true? Is it real? So then the, the fourth thing I want to mention to you about the blind men and the elephant is the parable teller, the person who writes the poem, as well as the elephant, actually, it occurs to me, has a unique vantage point. 
Have you ever seen the film Vantage Point? It's like of a presidential assassination sort of story in a movie where, first of all, the story's told from the perspective of a tourist who's watching, and then it's told from a journalist, and then it's told from a Secret Service agent. And with every slightly different lens, you get a different revelation, a different bit of truth. But do you ever really see the real perspective? Not until right at the end, and then do you really see it? Well, from the parables, parables point of view, you do see reality. You're invited into the reality of the parable or poet. By telling you the poem, they are saying, I see. I can see beyond you. I can see reality. I can see the elephant. I can see the blind men. I can see all of reality. I can see into all of the religions of the world. I can see into all of the religious practices and all of the ideas and beliefs that are in the hearts of every religious devotee around the world. And I can see what they really mean is this, but that's not what they think. It's quite an expansive vision to have that kind of insight, to see that all of those people are connected to the same thing. It assumes quite an amazing viewpoint. If that is the viewpoint you're um, occupying this morning, if, if you have that kind of vision, I would love to know the lottery numbers, if that would be possible. But I, I'm not sure we do have those credentials to know all of that. At the same time, this person who's telling us the parable, the story, giving us the picture of the blind man and the elephant is also saying something that contradicts. We all think that we can see. Nobody should claim that they can see reality. This is what they're saying through the parable. If anyone claims that they can see an elephant, then you should not take them seriously. They don't really see. It might be problematic. We tend to think that the different religions of the world all basically teach the same thing. From the outside, many of them have buildings, holy books, priests, communities, and they emphasize the same sorts of things, don't they? Like worship and love and... But when you think about it, the core teaching on topics like the nature and reality of God, whether there is a God being or not, whether that being is the same as the physical stuff of the universe, the nature of what it is to be human, what makes you you, what makes me me, what makes us human beings. Are we complex biomechanical machines? Are we something else with a soul or a spark? The nature of what it is to, you know, what's broken about us, what's wrong with the world and human beings. When we watch the news, the explanations we go to, all these are very, very different pictures. The problem is, is that all of the different religions on the world are utterly different on these points about what the final picture will look like, about what the answer to the human predicament is, about what the nature of spirituality is. They're all completely and utterly different. It's just not possible to maintain the view that they teach the same thing. It doesn't actually work with what, if, you, if you actually listen to what religious believers around the world in many different faiths actually believe. So if stamping out and control or controlling unique and special claims to know God doesn't work in terms of social cohesion and religious divisiveness, and if we don't want to just run around undermining religious claims, because actually they tend to come back and argue for themselves, then what is this third option in approaching religious beliefs? What is the third way of approaching it? Well, in the life of Pi, um, Jan Martel's book, it tells the story of a young man who survives a disaster at sea, and he's hurtled onto a, he, he ends up on, on a life raft, on a lifeboat with a tiger, for some reason, who's called Richard Parker. And it, it, the film tells the story of Pi's spiritual growth and development, and as he goes through his life, how he 
moves through different stages, Hinduism, Catholicism, Islam. And in the end of the film, the, 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 the message the film ponders is that maybe we can hold mutually contradictory truth claims about religion simultaneously. We've already talked a bit about that with the blind men and the elephant. But in this scene I'm going to show you, there is a way through different religious beliefs that's proposed around a family conversation around the table with his father. I want you um, to just listen to how his father um, proposes he should proceed with his religious journey through these different things, and then um, notice the way that Pi comes back and responds. Beliefs and the world in totally different ways. The last question I'd like to just spend the last five minutes thinking about is why Christianity out of all of the different religions in the world? I'd like to suggest that we can approach this with a sort of humble realism. This is the third way of approaching this problem of religious divisiveness, a humble realism. Realism is the idea that there are things out there beyond us. It's not just our own minds, and we're not just stuck in our own perceptions, our own bubbles, but we can discover reality. But in the Christian view, this might mean, well, we might say, well, don't we have to climb up the rock face on our own? Don't we have to sort of find our way up then? That sounds a bit hard. That sounds a bit tough. No, in the Christian faith, actually, the claim is, is that God has come down the mountain to us. We're not claiming we've figured it all out, that we've found out all the answers. But we're claiming that God has come to us and that he's revealed himself in certain ways that we can discover and we can check out. I think that it's a good idea to start with Christianity as you think through the different religious options on the table. As you think about, okay, what might this mean for me if I was wanting both to think through the problem of religious divisiveness, but also wanting to get a better idea and understanding of Christian faith? One of the interesting things to me that struck me as I started my own journey thinking about faith, I didn't come from a, a Christian background, I started to realize, actually, people are willing to offer evidence and data before I have to make a commitment. I was doing a philosophy degree, and I was struck by the number of arguments and reasons that people were putting forward for what they believed. Jesus makes claims that I am the truth, but he doesn't make that in a vacuum. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 16, and this falls within a whole sequence of miracles and insights that he has into people's lives, where he exercises power over nature, where he um, grows back people's limbs in plain sight, where he raises Lazarus from the dead just a few chapters before. He proclaims and declares and prophesies his own death on the cross, which is a prophetic fulfillment of something you know, imagined hundreds of years before. And then he comes back from the dead, he doesn't just make claims in a vacuum. He offers evidence to back up his claims. Now, I wonder um, when you're on public transport sometimes, if you sometimes look around at the people around you and you sort of wonder what their stories are, what's going on with them. Sometimes you get little glimpses, don't you, in the way they respond to things or what they're reading. It's quite a fun pastime, I know, for many Londoners to sort of people watch a bit and try to work out what's going on. But we, we are always struck with the idea, aren't we, that we're all different and we all come to reality and we all come to life and the challenges of life in different ways. There are things that are common to all of us, but we all approach life in different ways. Perhaps there are three kind of main ways that we investigate and explore the world around us. One way is the way of the thinker. 
And you can use all of these different ways, by the way. You don't have to be one or the other. I'm not pigeonholing, don't worry. And the thinker is interested in evidence and in logic, in arguments, in reasons, and in history. They want to be persuaded by objective facts with systematic consistency, with evidential reasoning. They want the hard arguments and the hard data, like a courtroom. They're imagining their search and their investigation into things. I'm really drawn to this, personally. It was the route that I came to faith, mainly. But they're also uh, intuitives. I've resisted calling us thinkers. I'm actually a feeler, um, personally, an intuitive. But this is the type of personality or the type of way that we explore reality where we're interested in how the narrative, which encompasses things like bravery and goodness and justice and kindness, how those things tie into the story and the way that we see the world. When we watch superhero films and we see these demigods who die and give their lives and work through identity struggles, what are the echoes in the human imagination that those stories tie into, the redemptive narratives, are they just because we're in Western sort of Judeo-Christian influenced culture, or is there something else going on? Are we seeing truths lived out? And this is where we perhaps ask existential questions, questions of um, what's my meaning, what's my purpose? How does this connect with me now, today, right now? And then there are others who are doers, pragmatists. And we approach life if we're doers. I'm also a bit of a doer. We learn by doing. We explore by acting and through commitments. In a way, that's what Pi is getting at at the table by saying, I still want to get baptized. He's willing to go on that journey. Now, I want to suggest to you that we can each explore Christian faith in our own ways and connect with God and search for spiritual reality through each of these three routes. You don't have to take any one route and you don't have to stick to one route in your journey and in your exploration of faith. And I want to suggest that this is a way of dealing with the problem of how we know that it's real and how we can claim and sustain claims that it's real. Because if we go on a thinking journey where we're exploring, we're always going to be able to respond to questions. It's not just going to be a dogmatically held belief. We're going to be able to open up and say, here are my reasonings, here are my, here's my chain of evidence. And that's an important part of this third way of dealing with it. Last one, last thing I want to say. Um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was living in Los Angeles, and there's, I don't know if you've ever been to Los Angeles, but there's a massive airport called LAX, and you can do a, do a bit of celebrity spotting if you're there at the right time of the week. Um, but it basically has an, a ring road that just is for the car parks in the um, airport. It's just massive. Anyway, I was dropping off my then-girlfriend, and I, I was quite upset, because I wasn't going to see her for a couple of months. I got her to the terminal, I just dumped the car anywhere, and um, then I wandered back out and I was like, oh no. Tears running down my face, obviously from saying goodbye. I'm like, Wait, where's the car? I had no idea. I don't know if, you, if you're guilty of ever playing this game. You can't quite remember where the car is, but you have a secret weapon, you have the bleeper. So you wander around the car park, trying to bleep, and trying to find the car that will respond to your key, to your bleeper. Well, I did this, and 45 minutes later, I was still doing it. I was thinking, maybe I should phone somebody. Or but eventually, I stumbled upon the car. I saw the flash of the lights responding. I was worried about the battery and the remote. I was like starting to use it conservatively. You know, It's like, well, I need to get a new battery or something. Anyway, I found the car. That car responded to my question, to my appeal to it, for it to open. And then I got into the car, and I drove it. And I really knew that was my car when I got into it. Firstly, because it's quite untidy, and I tend to have an untidy car, but also because I knew how to work it, and it worked. 
I think I explored that situation in all those different ways, didn't I? It was a thinking response, sort of going around, working out the areas. I was a little bit logical in the way I did it, didn't go back to the same areas twice. And then I was asking my question in the moment, existentially saying, are you there? Are you there? Will you speak to me? Will you connect with me to the car? <laughs> Bit funny, but anyway. And then, okay, then finally I got to the car. It responded to me. It revealed itself to me. Jesus' promises that anyone who seeks him will know the truth and the truth will set them free. My encouragement and my invitation to you is ask your questions. If you're a thinker, ask those questions. If you're an intuitive, ask those questions. If you're a doer, immerse yourself in the community of faith. Explore what it means to see people asking for prayers and then them getting answers. Why do they have that confidence that God's real? There's no one way that we have to approach it. And what you'll find, actually, if you read through the Gospels, if you open Mark's Gospel or the Book of Acts, you'll find individuals from all of these different approaches exploring faith and coming to faith in their own way. I think it's a beautiful picture of how God wants to reveal himself, but how he waits to be wanted. But I think it's also a picture of how God respects our individuality and wants you to meet him as you are and wants you to be the best you you can possibly be. Um, Jesus has lots of other things to say as well as that. He wants to challenge our hearts. He wants to reshape our lives. But that's the starting point. Do you have a bleeper? Are you willing to use it? Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Tom, so much. Really helpful. Lots to uh, ponder, reflect on, think about. Thanks for provoking us to, to think and consider this morning. So I'm going to jump into questions right away. We all, we all good for a few questions for a few minutes? Okay. So not easy. But I don't you... like easy questions. Okay, you'll like these then. Tom, isn't it unfair to elevate Jesus? What about those who've never heard never heard about him, who've lived in context where they've not been exposed to him. Isn't it just unfair to privilege one way when those in the world may not ever hear about that way? That's a, that's a very fair question. Um, and this question gets at the nature of God and what God's like. Is God good? Is God just? Is he fair? Is he right? Does he act rightly? Does he judge rightly? I think one of the assumptions that can run alongside and behind that question can be that people have to have a little kind of bit of information in order to respond to God. And that God is like, he's got like this kind of, he's, he's this bearded guy, obviously, looks a bit like Morgan Freeman or sounds a bit like Morgan Freeman. And, and, and God is like, has this clipboard. And if people have Done, said the right prayer or done the right thing or gone to the right church, then God ticks off the box, well done, you're in. That's not the picture that Jesus presents and that's not the picture of the New Testament and of theology. The picture that the Bible presents is that everybody has some access to God. Everybody has access to some degree of knowledge about God. And that God reveals himself and judges us on the basis of how we respond to what we know. So where I've heard of people in cultures where, and countries where it's very difficult to believe, and there's also social pressure not to believe in God or not to believe in, in Christian faith, I've heard that there's a much higher incidence of people having dreams and visions where God meets them or reveals himself to them in ways that they wouldn't normally have access to. 
It's also worth saying that Jesus' promise is that his same nature will be what we see in the judgment of God. So if we read about Jesus and we see Jesus is somebody who's good, Jesus is somebody who's just, who treats people well, who doesn't come down on people like a ton of bricks when they don't have access to help and to hope, Jesus is also somebody who's going to reflect that in the judgment he makes about us all. Now, he will judge us according to what we know. It's not just whether we conform to a particular Western opportunity, let's say, but it's Jesus actually will judge us, each of our hearts, according to what we have been shown. And so I, I think I would say we can be confident that that judgment will be fair, will be, will be okay, but everybody does have access to something, and God works with what we're already responding to because God is waiting to be wanted. Okay, really helpful. Thank you. Great thoughts. Um, okay, can't I just be spiritual without worrying about religious specifics? So all of this is very complicated, very difficult to work out. Can't I just kind of be a spiritual person, open to spiritual things, but not have to commit to any specifics of a religion? That's a good question, too. I think that's probably where I was coming to um, before, I, before I decided that I wanted to be a Christian and that I would, would respond in that way. I'd say two things. First of all, um, when we're spiritual, but we don't understand and have access to grace, we need to keep injecting forgiveness and hope and love into our experience of spirituality quite a lot of the time. I was listening to Russell Brand talking about um, his spiritual beliefs, and he was talking about how the fundamental nature of reality is, for him, love. That, that's the fundamental nature of all reality. He's a monist where he believes that what's spiritual is the same thing as the universe and existence, I think. I think he's, I think he's a monist. He might disagree, but I think he is. Um, whereas I think that the picture that we have of love in the Trinity in Christianity is a, a, an extraordinary basis for love. Let me try to explain it like this. If you have ever been in love, or if you've ever experienced or glimpsed love, you'll know that it takes a couple of people to be involved in that, either family love or in romantic love or in um, brotherly, sisterly love. or in, You need different individuals who can love each other. So if reality is just one thing, it's just love, then where is the personhood? in that? How can, how can there be love in just straight spiritual reality? I think you need personhood in order to have love. In the Trinitarian basis of faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a loving family who create because of the overflow of love for the different members of the Trinity, and then they redeem and they get involved in the saving plan of the gospel where Christ goes to the cross, that is an expression of God's love. And so we see demonstration and a theology that grounds that love in reality. The other thing is this, is that when we um, approach spirituality, I, I don't know about your heart, um, but I know mine. When I tend to approach life, I, I tend to quite regularly do things that are wrong, and I quite often have to say sorry, most often to my wife, sometimes to my kids, but I quite often have to say sorry to people around me. And sometimes I also notice that big and quite evil things happen in the world. And that nature, that moral nature of reality is something that I care about and matters to me. If spirituality is all one thing, then 
I think ultimate justice is, is problematic. If we want ultimate justice for wrong things that are happening in the world, if we really believe in true justice, that people don't just get away with things, then that has to have a grounding in the way that reality really is. Try to explain it um, like this. God recognizes that there's something deeply wrong with the world, and that's what's happening on the cross. The cross is God saying, I take evil, I take injustice, I take what's happening, suffering, so seriously, I'm willing to go to the cross to deal with it, to confront it. The cross is the great confrontation between the loving God and evil and pain and suffering. It's God turning around the world and redeeming the world and mending it. It's God's answer to the problem of human brokenness. It's where we can know that true justice occurs at the same time as seeing true love revealed. It's both of those things in one moment. That's what the cross is. That's why Christians go on about it so much, because it's the central moment of Christianity. And the resurrection is God's proof that that really happened, that that's real, that that's worth believing, that's worth taking seriously. If I'm just spiritual, how do I ground my notion of justice? How do I ground my desire for justice? Where is justice done? How is it done? In fact, if you read most spiritual thinkers, you'll find if you read Chopra or Deepak, um, yeah, Deepak Chopra or Paolo Coelho or James Redfield or Rhonda Byrne, most of them will say that ultimately everything is absorbed into the one or into the one mind. In her book, The Secret, Rhonda Byrne says that the reason why you're poor or the reason why car crashes happen or the reason why you're suffering is because you don't attract enough goodness to yourself. And eventually, those injustices are just absorbed into the one, into the one nature. Well, I'm struggling to ground out the hope I have of justice when I see people hurt or when I hear of murders or I hear of terrible things that have happened. I know of friends who have been raped. I know of people who have been abused. I, where is justice if, if everything is just spiritual? So I, I need that search for, um, for that, that search and that need for holiness to be satisfied. That's what I find in Christ. Um, so... I'm with you that spirituality and a way of engaging with our lives and, and, and that really makes sense and connects with us, that's the good side of it. That's the positive side. But I think those bigger questions about our identity, the nature of love, the nature of a grounding for justice, they're really, really important too. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer. Thanks, Tom. Sorry. All right. Okay. Just one, you got one minute. Okay, uh, this, one. Will be, this will be a much quicker okay. one. No, no, no. I, 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 that one... That one is something, if, you, if that's your view, and if I've offended you or hurt you in giving that answer, I'd love to talk to you more. I'd love to explain and hear more of your view. Um, could we talk, please? This is an invitation. I'll stick around for as long as you want to talk for. Sorry. Right, thanks. That wasn't a corrective. I'm just, we, we have time, one minute for okay. just a quick response. You mentioned not coming from a Christian background. Yes. How did you recognize and follow truth on that journey? What, what were some of the things you could point to? Oh, that's, I can do that in one minute, I think. Um, so I think doing philosophy, I realized that there was a credibility and a robustness to the Christian answers to serious questions. 
what was the universe? What, what, what is it? Where did it come from? Did it have an infinite regress of causes? Did it come from a starting point? Why is it finely tuned if we look through physics? It, what is the nature of moral reality? I realize that many of these big problems in metaphysics and in philosophy, I, they, they actually were, there were reasonable and persuasive answers that were at least given by, by some thoughtful Christians. And I was, wow, I didn't think that would happen. I was blown away by that. So that was one place I started to see the appeal or the glimmer of truth, let's say. Um, and then the second thing that happened was I had all sorts of existential questions in my life. I hadn't had a great adolescence, sort of disconnected from education, my family, everything. I'd taken about eight gap years, dropped out of school at 16, done a bit of drug dealing, wasn't a great picture. And I was smoking a lot of pot. And um, I, I realized that when I was doing logic, for, I was doing partly a computer science degree with my philosophy, and I realized that my homework that I was doing in the logic for computer science, it wasn't that on the money when I was a bit high. So I had to reduce the amount I was smoking. As I reduced the amount of, that I was smoking, I realized I had all these existential questions, all these personal questions about whether I was at peace, whether I was okay with silence, whether I was okay with my family, with my life. As I started to, in a way, reduce my support, distraction, substance, I, I was exposed to all my own personal questions. I started to ask those questions, and partly through movies, but also through the philosophy, I began to find answers. That started to glimmer. Third thing that happened was that I realized that I'd come to believe it was true. I realized that intellectually, I'd be I began to believe that it was, it was probably true. Christian faith was probably true. And then I realized that it also answered and would connect with me personally if I believed it and if I, if I went that road. So I knelt down in my room, in my student room, and I just held out my hands and I said, God, I'm convinced you're there and you're real. I think you're holy and I think you're pure. I don't really know much more about you, but I, I think you can forgive me and I think you can make me clean and I know I need to be made clean and I know I need your forgiveness because I'm not. There are things in my life I regret and things, mistakes I've made and I know I need your forgiveness if you're holy, if you're pure, if you're real. And so I put out my hands and, and nothing happened. And then gradually over the next few days and over the next few weeks, I began to realize that God was walking with me and God had become my friend. And that changed my life. Just the gradual experience of God working mm. with me and living my life alongside me. And I began to see answers to my prayers. I began to see his faithfulness. Mm. I still went through suffering and we still will go through suffering and pain. It doesn't mean he's abandoned us. But I began to see that he could make sense in my head, that he could meet the questions of my heart, and he could become a reality in my life in different ways simultaneously, I guess. And it's like a journey, isn't it, for all of us? Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you. So let's give Tom a round of applause. Thank you. Really provocative, really good. Thank you, Tom. I um, hope that that's provoked some more thoughts and a bit of a journey for you. Uh, to go on yourself in one or more of those different areas that he mentioned. Also a little bit mind-bending, so uh, if it takes time to di digest some of those realities, that is also uh, understandable. It will be for me. So what I'm going to invite us to do is invite, well, the band is up here, but invite the bands up in Westside and Battersea as well. And I'm going to ask us to stand for a moment while I pray, ask God to help us to make sense of what he's doing in us, and we're going to sing a closing song together, just as a, a response. What we love to do in this church is respond to what God's doing in the room. And uh, we are trusting that as Tom's been speaking, as we've been worshiping together, 
that God, God is doing something in each of the sites where we are meeting and worshiping Him. So let's just let's take a moment, if you're willing, just to close your eyes, comfortable to do that. just helps us to focus and be still. Wherever you, you are this morning in your faith journey, whether you are convinced like Tom has become or you are still exploring as he was before he was convinced, would you just, just stand with that in silence for a moment, wherever you are? God, I want to ask that as we're standing here that you would, you would meet each person as you have made them. You know they're bent towards thinking, intuiting, towards doing. You know where they're at with the questions they have, with experiences they are dealing with. And I ask right now that you would meet every person in the way that they need to be met with. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We believe that you are the one who leads us into all truth. And I ask that you would lead every person listening this morning into truth. If you're comfortable as we're in this moment of stillness, we just ask, ask God to speak to you. If you've never heard from God, you could say a very simple prayer, something like, God, if, if you're there, I'd really like to know about it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.